Hear now God's word as it is given to us in the book of the Acts, in the second chapter, starting in the 41st verse and reading the 41st and 42nd verses. For those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to speak to our hearts as we explore this Difficult sometimes, but vital um, subject of prayer. So let's ask his illumination. Our dear Lord, we are so blessed to come into your presence like this and to ask that you would bless us even more than you've already blessed us. Um, But we know that you have given us your word so that we will turn to it. We know that your Holy Spirit illuminates that word for us and makes it real to us and applies it to us. And something so essential to the Christian life as prayer and in this context, corporate prayer. Uh, Lord, I just pray that your spirit will stand in between my words, my paltry attempts to explain these things, and that it would be your word and your word alone that we would see this morning, the conviction, the ideas, the, 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 the formulation of the attitude that we have towards prayer, Lord. May it be entirely from your word, and may each word that I say be consistent with that word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I said, uh, this morning we're going to go back and sort of wrap up a, I'm not going to call it a mini-series, it just kind of developed, it was all supposed to be a single sermon, and you know the way that goes sometimes. Um, but it was it was just the, the sermon on the apostolic church, Now I'm going to put it into its context later, a little bit later on, but that's why we're going back, because we've already looked at the first three aspects of the apostolic church, and now we're going to focus on the last one, the prayers, and and, and how we pray, and specifically corporate prayers, how we pray together. Now, it's hard to separate corporate from private prayers because corporate prayers are just a bunch of people privately praying together. Uh, so, but I, I think you'll get the point that we're talking about the prayers that we we have together when we gather together as part of worship. Now, um, you, you, you know that prayer in general is a huge subject, and there's many different facets to it, and I can't possibly cover all of those in a single sermon, so I'm not even going to try, uh, but I want you to know that I am going to focus on one particular aspect of corporate prayer, and that is the attitude with which we pray. When we approach our God in prayer, how do we do it? And the reason for this is because I look around me at modern Christendom, current evangelicalism, and I see all kinds of, uh, from mild to just horrific abuses of the privilege that we have been given in prayer. And I know that underneath those abuses lies a, 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 a faulty theology. There is such a me movement in, 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 um, worship today that I think that sometimes that well, that pours over into our prayers. Not no, no matter how well taught we are, or how much time we spend in Scripture. So that is the reason that I'm going to go into this particular aspect of prayer, and that is the attitude that we have when we go, especially corporately, before the Lord in prayer. Now, uh, there's basically two problems that I'm I'm, I'm going to bring out. One of them just in passing, and the first one is just simply that most of you don't. Uh, and what I mean is that most of you don't pray corporately. We're going to have a prayer meeting in a little while after this service, and most of you will just get up and leave. And you won't think twice about it. Now, I'm not saying that to guilt you, because I really don't want you to stay out of guilt. But what I want to, I'm just stating it as a fact. For some reason, and, and I have to admit to you, I'm perplexed. I don't understand when I read what Scripture has to say about corporate prayer, and then I watch everybody get up and leave. 
and just a few stay behind. I, I am perplexed as to what's going on in your minds and what is so important that it would supplant the power of corporate prayer when the body of Christ gets together and prays. But more than that, that's really a, a, a subject for another day. More than that, I really want to focus in on the attitude. As I said, that is really where I want to, I want to delve into and see what we're thinking about when we actually go before the Lord in prayer. And towards that end, I, I, I want to kind of set the scene for you. And I'm going to set the scene in a way that does not initially deal didactically with prayer. But I think that you'll understand once I've kind of spit it out, once I get this before you, I think you'll realize the association that I'm making. Now, Brother Freddie read us from the Psalms earlier, and let me just read you a couple of verses from that. In Psalm 96 says, ascribe to the Lord. Now, when we ascribe, that doesn't mean we give. It doesn't mean that it's not already there. It means that we recognize something that already exists. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now, that really is sort of the analogy I want to keep this morning. I want just to imagine that when we pray, we are actually entering the courts of God as if we would be entering the courts of a, a sovereign king or, or some other kind of, of authority here in, 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 in the world in which we live. I want you to imagine that. And that is kind of where I'm going with the opening analogy. It goes on and says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Don't you love that phrase? The splendor of holiness. And that states that God is without question a holy God. And when we go into his presence, we are going into his presence and walking on holy ground. And that's why the psalmist says, tremble before him all the earth. This is the attitude of prayer. I mean, and, and we pick it up all through the Psalms. Psalm 99 says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. And so let me give you a example by recounting a story from Scripture. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. I know that you know it well. It's the story of Esther. And I don't have time to go into any depth about the, what goes on in the book of Esther. But most of you know that Esther was a beautiful Jewess. And she caught the eye of the, the underlings of Xerxes, who happened to be the king of Persia, the greatest empire on the face of the planet at this time. Now, this is during the Babylonian exile, which turned into the Persian exile. And so she's a slave. But anyway, she finds her way into Xerxes' harem and pleases Xerxes so much that he falls in love with her and makes her his queen. Now, now, this is kind of an important point. That means that Esther is the most connected, the most intimate, the one that perhaps would have the most access to the king and the most important woman in the Persian Empire. I want you to remember that as we see the way she enters the courts of that king. Now, the drama of the story is simply this. Her uncle Mordecai falls on the wrong side of an eagle of, uh, evil official named Haman or Haman, however you want to pronounce it. But anyway, Haman tricks Xerxes into signing a declaration that all the Jews in the entire empire are going to get killed on a certain day, not knowing that his beloved Esther is a Jew. Well, Mordecai gets word to Esther and says, Esther, you're going to have to do something about this. I mean, they're going to kill all the Jews. And when they find out that you're a Jew, you're going to die as well. You're going to have to go into Xerxes and plead our case. Well, here's what she said when presented with that. She said that all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. You, you walk into the king's courts of, of a petty potentate who, who's here today and gone tomorrow, been dead for thousands of years. You walk into his court and if he doesn't nod the head, you lose yours. 
That, that's the way it works. That's the kind of, of reverence and awe and fear that exists. Now, of course, Mordecai famously says, well, Esther, who knows that you weren't brought into this kingdom for such a time as this. And that's when she fatalistically somewhat says, okay, if I perish, I perish. Of course, she didn't. But here's the point, and here's the reason I'm telling you that story. I want you to imagine that you're Esther. And I want you to imagine that you have just been given the necessity of walking into unannounced and uninvited the courts of the king. How would you approach him? How would you do that? In what attitude would you approach that earthly king who has gone to here today and gone tomorrow? And yet, we, without thinking about it, waltz arrogantly into the courts of God and begin to demand things from him. I claim it. I declare it. I want it. I demand it. If you're my God, this is what I'm going to do. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. Jesus Christ gives me the right to do that. I'm an adopted son or an adopted daughter because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And you are absolutely, positively right. You have access into the courts of God because of Christ's death on the cross for you. If you put your faith in him. Because your sins are forgiven and most importantly because you are wrapped in the robe of his righteousness. Don't have to worry about that golden scepter being pointed your direction because that has already happened by the death of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, that does not give you the right To enter those courts arrogantly. That does not give you the right to make a single demand of that Lord. That does not give you the right to think of a word in your head. And then once you've got that word in your head said, God, because I have a word and I'm going to add faith to it. Then you are bound to answer me, to give me what I want. It it doesn't give you the right to shake your fist at God and to say, God, you didn't answer me when I asked you to answer me in the way that I asked you to answer me. And so therefore, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. It doesn't give you the right to do any of that. And yet, brothers and sisters, that's the way we pray. That's the way we pray. That's the way we walk into God's presence. And so that's the point that I want you to see. Because I want to ask the question this morning. Well, then how should we? Or what does scripture tell us? Now, I know something. I know I'm going to offend some of you. I know that before I even do it. And that's the reason I'm not going to tell you. It's not going to come. It's not going to be my words. I'm going to read it from scripture. We are going to hear from scripture almost exclusively this morning. And we're going to try to determine the attitude of prayer that we should have each and every one of us from what scripture says. Well, before we get there. Let's kind of take a look at our text, because after all, we have a very short text. <laughs> this will be the worst. Uh, you, you know, you think when there's a short text, there's going to be a short sermon, and it's not going to be short, I guarantee you, because this is a big subject. But anyway, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice that when Dr. Luke says this, he says, the prayers. So let me put it in this context a little bit. There's two things that I want to remember. I want you to remember about where we are. First of all, the reason I read you that 31st verse is because, is it the 31st or the 41st? 41st verse. The reason I read you that 41st verse is I wanted you to remember the state of the church in these days. 3,000 souls were added to the church on the day of Pentecost. This happens right after Pentecost. That means, plus the 120 who were there before Pentecost, we now have roughly 3,120 people in the church of Jerusalem. And how many of those 3,120 people were truly born again, regenerated Christians? 3,120 of them. So we have this little window there between the second and the fourth chapters of Acts of the pristine germinal church. Every single one of them knows the Lord because the Holy Spirit doesn't do his job halfway. This is before the weeds grow up in the midst of the wheat. It's before Jezebel sneaks in the back door. It's before Balaam comes and starts spouting his false doctrine. It's before the the wolves in sheep's clothing begin to attack the church. The inner corruption, the outer persecution. We have this pristine view of the church of Jesus Christ as it was in its infancy. And that's the reason that we have focused in on these four marks of the apostolic church. We started with the 
devotion to the word of God. I'm sorry, devotion to the teaching of the apostles, which is virtually saying the same thing. Because they used the Old Testament, bringing that into it. They recited or repeated what Jesus had taught them because the Holy Spirit is bringing it to their remembrance and guiding them in all truth. And so therefore, they are, they are teaching and preaching the word of God. Then we saw that they were devoted to the fellowship, the koinonia, the body of Christ, eliminating poverty, loving each other, a tightly bond group of people. And then we saw that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And we interpreted that as being the Lord's Supper, which we just took in the same sense as they were taking it back then. But then that brings us to the final one, which is... The prayers. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Notice, first of all, the definite article. Luke doesn't just say prayers or praying or or prayer in general. He says they devoted themselves to the prayers, plural. Now, what does that mean? What, what, What is he trying to tell us? What kind of prayers are these? Well, they're obviously corporate prayers. In other words, there are prayers that are done in, in, in the body as a part of worship. And they are more than likely formal prayers in the sense that a very major part of Jewish um, uh, liturgy prior to the church was the reciting of prayers. In fact, some of the Psalms. And then Thursday, we're going to recite the 136th Psalm together. That, that That's kind of a prayer. And so they had prayers that they recited as part of their worship. In fact, throughout the history of the Christian church... Most churches have had prayer books that were either their hymnals or very much like hymnals that people would have and they would join together in corporate prayers. Now, I don't think that that's the only thing that Luke means. I don't think that he's putting sort of boundaries around our prayers that they have to be read and be formal and orderly in that sense. Because later on, and I'm going to read you from the fourth chapter, we're going to see prayers that are being offered, it seems, in an impromptu kind of situation. But I do believe that what it is focusing on is that these corporate prayers are Part of worship. They are part of the worship of that germinal church. Now, when you start talking about corporate prayers and getting together to pray like we're going to do after this service, everyone seems to have their own opinion. And I can't please everyone because I get complaints from both sides. I get complaints from those that say, you know, Jesus said, hey, we're supposed to go in our closet and lock our door. And what are we doing praying out loud? Well, Jesus told us to not be pretentious in our prayers. I mean, to not pray to the people around us, to remember who we're praying to. He wasn't necessarily saying that we shouldn't pray corporately because that's exactly what we're seeing here. But then, then there's the, the, the other group who says that, well, I don't want you to, to, to have a whole body. What we need to do is we need to divide ourselves up into little small groups because so, everybody feels more comfortable in praying in small groups. And, and that's the way we should do it. And, and I say, absolutely, knock yourself out. Have as many small groups as you want to because I agree with you 100%. But that's not to replace corporate prayer. It's not to replace when the body of Christ in a particular church, which is one this is, get together to raise their voices, important word, to God. Raise their voices to God in prayer as a body. And that, I believe, is what we're hearing that the germinal church was involved with, that kind of prayer. Now, with that said... Prayers in a corporate sense, as I said earlier, are sometimes done with horrific intent. And and I'm sorry, it it just is. Some of the ways that people pray in churches, and I'm talking especially the word of faith churches and the, the, the prosperity theology, the name it, claim it approach to praying, whatever comes into my mind, I'm going to demand that God give it to me. This is such a... Me religion. And unfortunately, in its worst state, 
is the most prolific state. It is what D.A. Carson calls narcissistic therapeutic deism. And that perfectly captures what it is. It is narcissistic because it's all about me. It is therapeutic because it is about me being wealthy and healthy and wise and being happy. And it is deism because they attribute all that. And that's their understanding of God. Well, let me explain something. The way we pray reflects our theology. It reflects what we think about God. Because you're going to pray in such a way that, that is, is an echo of how you see God. And so therefore, when I hear some of these prayers from other places and, and I see them creeping into even our church in some ways... I realize that underneath it, there's a theological issue. It's, a, it's the hole in the theology and not necessarily the hole in the prayer. So that's the first place I want to go. And what I want to do is I want to establish the theology, our view of God. And I want to do it, not me telling you. I want scripture to tell you because here's the way we're going to go about it. I'm going to turn to scripture and I'm going to go and I'm going to ask the question, how did the great men of God approach God? When they were in his presence, what was the stance or the posture or the methodology by which they approached God? Was it arrogant? Was it forceful? Did they talk and raise their voices at God? Did they demand things and claim things and declare things? Or was it done in a completely different manner? So we're going to take a little romp through history here for just a minute. And I'm going to start with Abraham. Abraham was one of the most connected men ever in the history of the world. He is the man through whom God made the covenant of grace that we still enjoy. He is the man that God said, you will have the descendants and through your descendants, all the world will be blessed, pointing to the coming of Jesus. In fact, James tells us this in his book. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now, you remember I told you to make note that Esther was connected and yet she still was humble and reverent and contrite when she entered the courts of Xerxes. Well, Abraham has every reason to just simply waltz into the courts of God. But he didn't. Here's what we read about Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Then Abraham fell on his face. I want you to note that phrase. You're going to hear it a lot. Because... In Abraham's case, and most of the people I'm going to, we're going to see it in, I think most of them li- literally, physically, fell on their face with their face in the dirt. And that's the way they, they address God. Now, so I'm going to tell you right now, when we have our prayer meeting, I don't want to see you on the floor face down. That's not what I'm asking. But what I'm telling you is that's the attitude. That's the inner heart. On your face, prostrate upon the ground, your face in the dirt. That's the way Abraham... Address God. It's also the way that Moses addressed God. Once again, one of the greatest men in all of, 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 of redemptive history. Moses was the one that God chose to be the deliverer. To go to Egypt to set his people free. Moses was the one that he worked mighty miracles through. Moses is the one that he took up on top of Mount Sinai to give the law. And to lead the people to the promised land. God did so much through Moses. In fact... He was almost like a friend of God, like Abraham was. We read this in Numbers. I'm sorry, we read it in Deuteronomy. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So if anyone had the right to be sort of forceful with God or, 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 or to be arrogant or demanding, it would be a man like Moses. And yet we know that that's not the way Moses ever approached God. When he met God at the burning bush, you know this story well. God called to him from out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God says, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
Brothers and sisters, it is my contention that when we enter the courts of God in prayer, we are on holy ground. Take the sandals off of your spiritual feet. Fall on your face before the God of creation, the God of eternity, the God of infinity. That's what Moses would do. Numbers 20. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. You're not going to catch Moses treating his access to God flippantly. Nor with David. I mean, we just go right down these covenants, you know. Nor with David. I mean, who was more connected than David? David is the king that was the type of Christ the king. His kingdom was the type of the kingdom of heaven. And it all pointed towards them. And David was a very special man. We are told that David was a man after God's own heart. Upon whom the spirit of God rushed continually. There was anyone that had a right to... to to stand up or, 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 or to be forceful to God, it, it was David, but you'd never catch him doing it. First Chronicles, we read, then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. There we are again. And we hear the most reverence between David. Listen to what he says. This is when he walks in after he's brought the ark to Jerusalem. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus Who am I? What right do I have to even be in your presence? What a privilege. What a blessing. What a grace. Not a hint. Not a hint of arrogance in David's voice. Well, those are all kings and prophets and priests. Well, what about, I'm sorry, what about the prophets? Well, probably no greater prophet than Isaiah. Uh, Certainly as far as the amount of his prophecy is concerned and what the Lord spoke through him. I mean, the prophets of old were the people that God spoke through. They literally said, thus saith the Lord. And Isaiah gives us probably the most glorious picture of the throne room of God. When in his sixth chapter, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah speaking, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Falling on his face, he says, woe is me, never more in touch with his own sinfulness. The closer God gets, the worse his sinfulness looks, and he says, woe is me, I am undone. I love the way the King James says it. You're not going to find Arrogance demands. He's on his face. He's overwhelmed by his own sinfulness in the presence of the holy God. And just so you don't think that this is just talking about great people. What about the people of God? Well, people of God are that we see, the church, the ecclesia, we can go all the way back to its conception, its beginning. In the Old Testament, it was known as the kahal. And the first gathering of that congregation was when they gathered before Mount Sinai to receive the law. And here's what God told Moses. He said, go tell the people to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now, that's the access that the early, the first church had to God. Don't even Touch the mountain because I'm going to be on top of it and the whole mountain is holy and you are profane and that which is profane cannot be in the presence of that which is holy. And so therefore warn them, don't touch it or you die. Now, once again, that's changed. It's changed in this New Testament 
new covenant. Because we have the robes of righteousness. And we can touch that mountain. And we're given that, that ability, that privilege. But again, brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean arrogance. It doesn't mean claiming. It doesn't mean demanding. It doesn't mean raising your voice at God. You can raise your voice to Him all you want. But don't you ever raise your voice at Him. Because He is holy. And we have called before a holy God. Well, just so you don't think this is an Old Testament phenomenon... It continues on into the New Testament. You remember when Peter and James and John followed Jesus up the mountain of transfiguration? You remember what happened then? And Jesus was transfigured before them? Here's what we read. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were terrified. That phrase, brothers and sisters, just keeps popping up over and over again. They fell on their faces. That seems to be the posture of those who are in the presence of God. I've just given you a smattering. I've just given you the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you read it over and over again from Leviticus. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. From Numbers, and they fell on their faces and said, Oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. From Joshua, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? From kings, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This seems to be the proper posture when you are in the presence of God, like we are when we enter his courts in prayer. And don't think that this is just fallen sinners. Because the same thing actually happens more in heaven. When we get just the glimpse of heaven through John's apocalyptic vision and revelation, this is what we read. And the 24 elders, and I'm not talking about the everyday folks, I'm talking about the elders, the 24 elders sit around the throne of God. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped him. And brothers and sisters, it's not even just humans. Because the most amazing scene, if you can possibly imagine this, I can't. I get my mind blows each time I, I try to think of it. But we are told that around the throne of God and around those elders were myriads upon myriads and ten thousands upon ten thousands. That's a Hebraism that means an innumerable amount of angels. Gabriel said, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And this is how they react to the presence of God. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Not a hint of arrogance. Not a hint of name it, claim it. Not a hint of demanding. Not a hint of, I, I'm doing this, this is about me. I have a felt need and I want you to respond to my felt need. Not a hint, not a sliver in all of that. No me whatsoever in the way that they approach God. And let me tell you something, I'm telling you. If your theology is right, your prayers are going to be right. If your prayers are wrong, your theology is wrong. If you understand the holiness and the sovereignty of God, it is going to be reflected in the way you approach him in prayer. But of course, brothers and sisters, we know we have no better example than Jesus himself, right? How did Jesus, son of God, God in the flesh, the Logos who became flesh, how did he approach his own father? Matthew 26, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was reverent when he went to prayer with his father. He was loving and compassionate and fervent, but he was reverent. From John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. 
Later on in the same chapter, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. In Matthew, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Have I made my point? When you enter the courts of God, Scripture tells you, fall on your face. This is the Attitude. And there's a beautiful picture of this attitude. If you just stay with me. Again, I know I say this every time I go back to the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite Old Testament uh, stories. But it is the perfect illustration of the kind of attitude that we need to take when we go into the courts of our Lord in a Christian context. And it's the story of Mephibosheth when he stands before David. Now, as you know, David is a type of Christ. David the king is a type of Christ. And brothers and sisters, there's probably no better symbolic type of you and of me than a poor old Mephibosheth. Lame in both his feet. Now, we know because we've read the story, we know That David is looking for a son of Jonathan. He made a compact with Jonathan that he would take care of his family. Jonathan has died as has Saul. And so he asks, is there anyone I can show honor to Jonathan uh, to? And they say, yep, yeah, there's one. There's old Mephibosheth. He's been hiding over across the eastern side of the Jordan. And he's the last survivor. So they went and they got Mephibosheth and they brought him for David. Now, Mephibosheth has two strikes against him, two big strikes. First of all, he's lame in both his feet, and he's standing before the king who said when he conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites, the blind and the lame will never enter my house. Of course, he was saying it kind of boldly at that time. But here, Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. But far worse, he's the son of Saul, the grandson of Saul. And therefore, he's a contender to the throne. And it was just a matter of fact. I mean, it, you know, hey, you know, no, no, uh, didn't mean any insult to you, but I got to kill you because you happen to be the a contender to the throne. That's that's what every king did in that day. When they took over the throne, they would look for every single heir apparent to the throne, and they would wipe him out. It was just done. So when Mephibosheth stood before David, that's what he thinks is going to happen to him. Here's what we read from 2 Samuel. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. There we are. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. I mean, Mephibosheth knows why he's there. He's there because he's about to get eliminated. He has no idea what David's plans are. So David says... Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What a privilege. That makes him one of the richest men in Israel because Saul had a vast fortune. And he's going to give it all back to Mephibosheth, who has never had anything. And he is going to sit him at his table. Can you see the Christian symbolism for those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb? He's going to sit at the table of the king and... Be blessed. I want you to see something, brothers and sisters. Don't miss this. Notice how Mephibosheth responds. The eighth verse of the ninth chapter. He paid homage, honored. And he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Brothers and sisters, that is our attitude exactly. We're called before the throne of God and we have every reason for him to judge us and condemn us and send our body and our soul to hell. Yet he doesn't. Is it because of us? Is it because anything we did? No, it's because of his son, Jesus Christ. And so he invites us in. He elevates us. He exalts us. He gives us righteousness and he invites us to eat at his table. It is mercy and grace and compassion and love that is coming from the king. But that does not give us the right to be arrogant before him. 
We're dead dogs before him. And we need to recognize that. That's the way we enter his presence. Flat on our faces. Recognizing that we have been so blessed to be there. And that therefore, when we approach our king, we approach him with reverence because he is holy. And we approach him with with obedience because he is sovereign. Oh, don't get me wrong, brothers and sisters. All day long. Sing and praise and glorify him. I'm not saying that we need to be dry and formal and and lifeless. After all, Psalm 100 tells us to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So in other words, our prayers, our worship can be passionate and fervent. There's nothing wrong with that. And they're not mutually exclusive. The fact that you're passionate and fervent does not mean that you have to raise your voice at God. But rather raise your voice to him. From the prone position. (laughs) From the prostrate position. With your face in the dirt. That's the Mephibosheth attitude. I'll refer to it regularly because that, brothers and sisters, I think is the attitude in which we should approach the throne of God in prayer. Well, that's a story that tells us, uh, gives us in sort of a symbol, symbolic way or analogous way. But the great thing about scripture is that it, it, it also, it tells you stories that you can pull these things from, but it also tells you straight out in what's known as didactic teaching. Didactic teaching is informative teaching like when a professor teaches math to a student. This is the way you do it. One, two, three. So scripture teaches us, and scripture is not silent, brothers and sisters, by any means, as far as how we should pray or how we shouldn't pray. So therefore, let's take a look, first of all, of how we shouldn't pray, because scripture, as I said, is not silent at all. In the Old Testament, we we run across a truly kind of profoundly impactful phrase. Solomon was the man who wrote most of the wisdom literature in Scripture. He was the man who prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him. So this is the wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Can I repeat that? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. He goes on to the next verse and says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Can I repeat that? Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, he's not saying speak in one syllable, one word sentences. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is make your words count. Don't just babble on. Don't just make up things to say. And by all means, don't pray to God when you're actually praying to the people around you. Jesus tells us a parable about that. Really profound. It can be seen from very different um, perspectives. But he tells a story about two men. One prays right, one prays wrong. Unfortunately, most of modern Christendom prays wrong, like the other man. We get this out of Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Probably told his friends that I've got a gift of prayer, so I am so righteous. I need to pray for you because I can pray for you better than you can pray for yourself. God listens to me because I know what I'm talking about. He was arrogant. He was rash, he was self-centered, he was self-righteous, he was self-glorifying, and Jesus says that's not the way to pray. Rather, he points us to the other man. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Contrite prayers 
is what we're seeing there. And it's not just a tax gatherer. It's not just the lowest sinner. We're talking about, we can talk, find this in some of the greatest men of God. Approaching God this way, Ezra, for instance, who was a a, a priest. This is what he said when he saw sinfulness within the children of Israel. He says, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. Because of the sins, not of his own but of his people. Do you think, brothers and sisters, that we might have reason to blush when we raise our voices to God, considering the shape of the country that we live in? Well, nonetheless, Jesus teaches us without question how not to pray. He goes on and he continues that in his Sermon on the Mount, getting very specific for us. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Brothers and sisters, I take this to heart as a pastor because I do that all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be pompous or pretentious, but I say a lot of prayers, not thinking about who I'm praying to, but thinking about who I'm praying among because there's doctrine and theology in my prayers and You know, something is perfectly fine to talk theology to God, but when you forget that you're talking to God and you start thinking that you're talking to those around you, that's when you get way off base. This is one of those things that we need to continually be roped back into what Scripture teaches us. Jesus also said in that Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And again, I don't think he's saying you can only pray short, one-syllable, one-word prayers. But the Lord does know what you're praying for before you do it, before you pray. And you don't necessarily have to spell it completely out. But I think that he is speaking against unnecessary babble. Just repeating yourself. Or everybody praying at once to where no one can hear what anyone is saying. And it's just a bunch of noise. I've been in situations like that. So Jesus teaches us without question how not to pray. But he also taught us and showed us how to pray. And, and, and there's, there, there's, there's three things that I want to bring out. Three words that I, I want to just emphasize. Jesus taught us to pray fervently. That means with compassion and passion in our prayers. Yet always to God and never at him. There's a big difference there. Jesus taught us to be reverent in our prayers because we're praying to a holy God. And Jesus taught us to be obedient in our prayers because we are praying to a sovereign God. We can see how those play out. Writer of Hebrews says this in the fifth chapter. In the days of his flesh, talking about Jesus... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, passionate, fervent prayers. Nothing wrong with fervent prayers. You can have fervent prayers and be praying to God and not at him. But don't you raise your voice at God. Don't you raise your voice in boldness to say, God, you do this or you grant this. It's a whole different story. Jesus didn't even do that. But he goes on to say, to him who was able to save him from death... And he was heard because of his reverence. Isn't that interesting? That he was heard because of his reverence. Talking about Jesus in the flesh. So Jesus was fully aware. His theology says God is holy. So his prayer says I'm reverent. You see how theology affects your prayers. God is listening. God is compassionate. God is a heart. So therefore, I'm going to be fervent and passionate in my prayers. Okay? My theology will govern my prayers. By the same token, Jesus knew that God was sovereign. And so therefore, everything that occurs, everything that has occurred or ever will occur is the sovereign ordained will of God. And so, once again, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Even though he's the son of God, Jesus was obedient. And we, of course, know that he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father. 
Now, you know what that word Abba means. It's Papa. It's a, it's a term of endearment. And we are given the right to call God Abba. To crawl up in his lap, as it were. And to tell him the things that bother us and ask him for the things that we need. We're encouraged to do that. But never talking at him. Because Jesus didn't talk at him. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible from you. For you, remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but your will be done. You see, that is obedience because you understand the sovereignty of God. Oh, Jesus had it in his head. He had a word in his head. And the word was, I'd like not to go to the cross, please. If it's at all possible, if there's any other way that we can accomplish this without me going to the cross, may it happen. And yet, when God said, no, you're going to the cross because that is what I have preordained for you to do in the full foreknowledge of me. Jesus says, I will go. Your will be done and not mine. His prayers were never, God, you didn't answer my prayer, so I'm not going to believe in you. You didn't ask answer it as fast as I wanted you to, so I'm not going to believe in you. I'm going to grumble and I'm going to gripe and I'm going to question your goodness and your justness because you haven't answered my prayer. How many do that? Because I do it too. You don't have to open, you don't have to raise your hands. I'll raise mine because shame on me. That's human nature. We're impatient and we want God to answer our prayers right then and there. And we start to accuse him of not being good. That's a hole in our theology. God is good and everything that he does is good. And there's nothing that he can do that possibly would not be good. Because God is good through and through. So therefore, even if he doesn't answer us right away, we know that he is good and that whatever it is, is good. So brothers and sisters, no Discussion of prayer would be complete, and I'm running long, so let me wrap this up. No discussion of prayer would be complete without at least looking at the so-called Lord's Prayer. You know that Spurgeon had a real problem with that title. He says this is not the Lord's Prayer, okay? John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. This is our prayer. That's why he starts it out, our Father. There's only one being who ever had the right to actually call God Father, and that is Jesus, because he's the Son of God. He is the divine second member of the Godhead. But he has given us the right to address God as our Father, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Man, it is all right there. Our Father in heaven, remember that he's in heaven and that you're not. That his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth are his thoughts and ways above ours. We cannot even comprehend his thoughts and ways. So holy is he. And that's what he says next. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. May we ascribe glory and honor to you because you are holy. Your kingdom come. That is the purpose. Now, yes, we're going to ask for the things we need. We're going to ask for the necessities. But the reason that we are here is for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. So he reminds us that we are God's. He is holy. And our job is to pursue the kingdom, even as we talked about last week. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven where people are glorified, where angels live. It is without question that the will of God is done. And so therefore when they address God, they fall on their faces before God to show us this is the posture. This is the attitude that you would address God in that way. And also implicit in that statement is his will is done up there, but it's not done down here. And so that should be our prayer, that we actually pray to him in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, let me wrap this up by taking you back to the book of Acts. Because, again, there we have the picture of corporate prayer. And I'm not going to go back to the second chapter, but I'm just going to kind of roll forward to the fourth chapter. Again, I know I'm going long. I'm not going to go any any depth in what this is. But... This particular event happens after Peter and John have been in jail and been in the first trial before the Sanhedrin. 
day before, they're in the temple. There's a man born lame. He, they heal him. He's dancing around like a calf everywhere. Everybody sees it. So he gets arrested for that, or they get arrested for that, taken before the Sanhedrin. They are put on trial by the big wigs, Annas and Caiaphas and all the rest. And they are told, don't you dare. Peter, first of all, preached the word of God to them. That group. Man, you talk about boldness. And, and, and they said, I don't want to see you ever preaching in the name of this Jesus again. Go your way. So they went. And they went back to the koinonia. They went back to the church. And that's when this prayer, this corporate prayer occurred. Now, here's what they said. I'm reading from the 24th verse of the 4th chapter of Acts. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. They lifted their voices together. That's corporate prayer. That's the body of Christ praying together, even though they're not all talking together at the same time. And they didn't lift their voices at God. They lifted them to God. They lifted them up in cries and and a desire, in supplication, in intercession. They are asking God in His grace and mercy to listen to a bunch of dead dogs like them. Which He has promised that He will do. No arrogance whatsoever in this. And so, they start out by saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them. First of all, they established the holiness and the greatness, the majesty of God. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. You see, I'm, I'm not talking about words here. I mean, you can start your prayers with, O oh, Sovereign Lord, and it can just be words that you repeat. With these, it's an attitude. Oh, Sovereign God, we are on our face before you. We are prostrate on the ground. We are dead dogs and we have no right to address you other than the right that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Sovereign God. They go on to talk about the persecution. You see, they, they, they quote Psalm 2. Let the nations rage because that's what they've just seen. And they have just seen the nations have raged against your anointed one, Jesus Christ. And it has been driven home to them that they're about to face the same kind of persecution. And so this is what we hear them say. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to, your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And the word of faith, the word of faith, people say, aha, there you have it. We're supposed to pray to God with boldness. So we're supposed to go in with forceful prayers and say, God, I am standing before you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I am standing on faith and I claim this in his name. That's boldness. Well, that's not at all what they're talking about there. That's not the kind of boldness that they're talking. You know the kind of boldness they're asking for? They're asking for boldness to be apostles when they're taken into the arena to be torn apart by wild animals. They're asking for boldness when they light the fire that they wouldn't lose their faith and turn on the faith or run from it or deny Christ or deny the resurrection. That's the kind of boldness they're praying for. Not boldness at God, but boldness for God. Boldness to be able to Repeat the words, no matter how tough things got. That's why they end it. And when they had prayed, oh, let me just stop there before I go. Is there power in corporate prayer? Is there power? Do you need to be forceful and go yell at God and talk about your faith and your strength and stand up and claim to be the great prayer and, 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 and have all this forcefulness in order for there to be power in prayer? Well, that, that's what modern Christendom teaches you. You've got to be demonstrative. You've got to be bold. These people were not demonstrative. They weren't bold. They're Mephibosheths in action. Oh, sovereign Lord, give us boldness so that we can die well. With your words upon our lips. Is there power in that kind of prayer folks? And when they had prayed. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's the boldness that they're working for. That they're looking for. And yes they continued to speak the word of God in boldness. And yes they changed the world. And turned it upside down. Is there power in corporate prayer? You better believe there is. That's the reason we gather together. And that's the reason it is so important for me. That we do it right. With the right attitude. 
And basically it's those three words that I want you to remember. And I'll leave you with this. That when we come before the Lord. That we come before him recognizing his holiness. And therefore we do it with reverence. And deference. And humility. As a bunch of dead dogs on our face. That we come to the Lord. And we worship fervently. Passionately. Crying if it's necessary. I mean, to reach out to God with their voices and pray fervently. You remember Hannah's prayer? Remember her? Remember what she did? She's praying so fervently that Eli thought she was drunk. Okay, so there's, there's no, nothing wrong with praying passionately. But brothers and sisters, don't you pray at him. Not here. Pray to him. And ask him for his blessing. And then thirdly, because he's sovereign, we pray with obedience. And those three things, brothers and sisters, if we are praying by symbolically lying on our face and recognizing the sovereignty of God, I think we have accomplished the Mephibosheth principle in prayers. And those prayers, brothers and sisters, are powerful. So let's pray to him. Lord, I know that we do. Everything we do, we, we, we sort of do wrong until we're instructed. Your word is so valuable as we pass through it and, and we look at it and we see how the great men of old and the great women of old prayed with, with fervently and reverently and obediently, recognizing your joy and compassion, recognizing your holiness and recognizing your sovereignty without compromising any of those three, but approaching you in that way. Lord, may we get the message directly from Scripture. Because I think otherwise, I think we, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit standing between us, groaning with words too, too deep to understand, to interpret our prayers to you, we would rather please you with our prayers so that you would be pleased with this church and pleased with all of us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.